0: In the passage that Timothy just read so well to us, Jesus says in a specific way what the rest of the New Testament says in a general way. And there are three observations we can make from that statement that we just saw in Matthew 7. In this solemn statement that Jesus makes, first of all, we can observe that life has but two roadways. If you'll notice in that passage in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus speaks of the straight gate and the narrow way, that's roadway number one. He speaks of the wide gate and the broad way, that's roadway number two. As far as our Lord is concerned, these are the two roadways in life. Here in America, we speak of the upper class and the middle class and the lower class. But you will notice that our Lord speaks of only two classes of humanity. Those on the broad way, those on the narrow way. Those that are saved and those that are lost. Way back when the Titanic went down, they published two lists. Those that survived and those that didn't. But on the judgment day, according to Matthew chapter 25, our Lord is going to divide humanity into two groups. And we're all going to be in one of those two groups. We'll either be on His right hand or His left. We'll be going to heaven or hell. And so in this statement that Jesus makes, we can observe that life has but two roadways. But in this solemn statement that Jesus utters here in the Sermon on the Mount, we can also observe that eternity has only two dwelling places. That straight gate and that narrow way leads to life. And that wide gate and that broad way leads to destruction. Our Lord is considering everlasting life and everlasting destruction heaven and hell we are all heading out towards some eternal dwelling place we are heading in only one direction whatever is said can never be unsaid whatever is done can never be undone we are all traveling in one direction you are right now closer to the judgment day than you have ever been You are 24 hours closer to the second coming of Christ than you were this time yesterday. And so, our Lord depicts for us our traveling in one direction, and we're going to be in one of those two eternal dwelling places. Either we're going to dwell in heaven where there's nothing but life and eternal bliss and fellowship with the Godhead and the angels and the saints of all ages, or we're going to dwell in everlasting despair. Everlasting pain, everlasting fire. But then third in this solemn statement of our Savior, we also observe that more are going to hell than are going to heaven. You will observe in Matthew chapter 7 that our Lord does not give us specific numbers, but He does use two words. He uses the word few and the word many. I don't know how many our Lord has in mind when He says few. And I don't know how many our Lord has in mind when He says many. But I know that when our Lord speaks of those who are going to be saved, He says, few there be that find it. And I know that when our Lord speaks of the population of those who are going to be lost, He says, many there be that go in, thereat." To me, it's a startling thing that more are going to hell than are going to heaven. If hell is so terrible and heaven is so wonderful, why would more go to hell than go to heaven? But I submit to you that men run toward the devil as if he were God. And run from God as if he were the devil. Men run toward uh, sin as if it were righteousness. And run from righteousness as if it were sin. Men run toward hell as if it were heaven. And run from heaven as if it were hell. It's an insane age in which we live. And yet the Bible makes it very clear that God wants all of us to be saved. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. We have the great hope in the light of the second coming and the discussion that Peter is having there. And he said, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some men count slowness, but is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so if at the end of my life I find myself lost, it'll be because I chose that broad way that leads to destruction. And if in the end I find myself saved and with the Lord in heaven, it will be because I chose that road that leads to life. Now realize that Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 7 that this is a broad and it's an easy way. It is the way of least resistance. It is the way that's being traveled by the majority. But I submit to you that there is a sense in which it is a very difficult thing to be lost. You see, if you can think of it in terms of this way, that on that broad and on that wide way, that there are hills, there are barriers that God has placed there to keep us from being lost. Because God does not want us to be eternally separated from Him. Consider for a few moments some of those hills that God has placed on the road between us and being lost. First, there is the hill of gospel preaching. Gospel preaching has played a part in God's saving plan all the way back to the beginning of time. In fact, Peter in 2 Peter 2 and verse 5 refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. And much of the work of the prophets dealt with preaching. Remember in Jonah's second commission on the other side of coming out of the fish. In Jonah chapter 3 and verse 2, the Bible says, Arise and go into Nineveh, and there preach the preaching that I bid you. And when the New Testament era opens... We see the role that preaching played. Here is the forerunner of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. And the Bible says that John the Baptist was out in the wilderness of Judea and preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then our Lord is baptized and he's tempted. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17 we read that Jesus was preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Much of the emphasis of Jesus' earthly ministry was on preaching. Remember early on in the book of Mark that Jesus was compassionately healing those that were coming to him. And when they came again, Jesus said, I'm, not, I'm going to the next village and preach. For that reason have I been sent. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends 70 of his disciples, two by two, to the loss of the household of Israel to preach restoration to God. And then after his resurrection... We're not surprised that Jesus is telling the disciples to go and to preach the gospel to every creature. And neither are we surprised to see a great emphasis on preaching when we look at the uh, the epistles. And For example, in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 21, the Bible tells us that it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save those that believe. Titus chapter 1 and verse 3 says that God has in due time revealed His will through preaching. I don't know how many sermons I've heard in my lifetime. Being the son of a preacher. Going to church all my life. i preached my first sermon at the age of 17. I don't know how many Bible classes that I have sat in. In addition to going through the Bible school program in my youth. I went to three Christian colleges and schools. I don't know how many sermons I've preached. I don't know how many Bible classes I've taught. But if I die lost... I'm going to have to say no to every sermon that I've ever heard and every Bible class I've ever been a part of. Gospel preaching does not leave us the same. It'll either humble your heart or it'll harden your heart. Every time you open up your heart to the Word of God, you're humbling your heart to the will of God. And every time you reject the message of salvation, you're hardening your heart. The old saying goes, the same sun that melts the butter hardens the clay. And the same gospel preached will open one heart and will close another. Will save one man and condemn another. I realize this morning that there are some present here today. Who need to obey the gospel. And you'll either open your heart. Or you'll harden your heart. But you will have to say no to the hill of gospel preaching in order to be lost. There is also the hill of the church. That God has placed on the roadway between a person and being lost. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Paul makes reference to the church as the pillar and the support of the truth. With all the emphasis that is made. And that has been stated with regard to thinking souls. And the vision statement pointing us in that direction. With the work that's been done in the school for almost 50 years now, there has been a determined and a consistent effort made by this congregation to reach out to this community and to reach the lost of this world. You know, I've known some churches through the years that weren't living right, they weren't evangelistic and they weren't praying, and you'd have to climb over them in order to get to God. But I don't believe that's true of this congregation. You have served notice on this community. Every time you have knocked on a door and handed a brochure. Every time you have invited a friend or a neighbor or a relative. You've offered financial assistance where you could. You've prayed for them. You've loved them. You've set the right example for them. You have served notice on the lost around you, at least by example. If you're going to be lost, you're going to have to climb over us in order to do it. I thank God each and every day for the elders that lead this congregation. They are good and godly men. They are active in the work of the church and they are concerned about the lost. If you die lost, you'll have to say no to the leadership of these elders. To the various preaching that's done in this pulpit. To the Bible classes. To our young people. To uh, uh, the love of every member. But God has placed the church as a hill between a person and being lost. But then there's also the hill of the Bible. I'll be the first to admit to you that there are some things about the Bible that are difficult to understand. But I feel in good company when I say that Peter said the same thing by inspiration in 2 Peter chapter 3. He's talking about the second coming. In some of Paul's writings, he says, is also in some of Paul's writings, writing in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which those that are unlearned and unstable twist, as they do the rest of the scripture, to their own destruction. wonder what Peter had in mind there. Did Peter have in mind perhaps part of the books of, book of Romans or individual verses under Paul's hand? Maybe he had in mind 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty nine and the baptism of the dead. I understand the context, but that illustration can be difficult. There's some other difficult or problematic texts in the Bible, but for all of that, there is so much of the Bible that all of us can understand. For example, in three different Gospels, we have uh, demonstrated for us the Great Commission. And in the Great Commission, in those three different perspectives, we have a different emphasis that is placed down by those writers I want you to think with me, for example, that in the book of Mark, there is a decided emphasis that is placed there by the gospel writer, Mark. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 16, Jesus says, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. The emphasis of Mark in that particular gospel is on belief. And then we look over in the book of Luke and we see a different emphasis that's given there. In Luke chapter 24, verse 46 and 47, Jesus says that beginning in Jerusalem, that repentance and the remission of sins should be preached in his name. So Luke gives us a different emphasis, and that's on repentance. And then we turn over to the Gospel of Matthew. And as Matthew is given the great commission that Jesus gives to his disciples, there's a different emphasis. In Matthew 28 and verse 19, Jesus sends his disciples saying that they are to go and to teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So you have three different emphasis. In Mark's gospel, you have belief. In Luke's gospel, you have repentance. And in Matthew's gospel, you have baptism. Now in your mind's eye, on this side of the podium, imagine a big red A and let that stand for the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And on this side of the pulpit, imagine in your mind a big red E and let that stand for the end of time. And that hyphen in between, from the ascension of Christ until Christ comes again, is the Christian age. And so long as it stands, those same three conditions, belief, repentance, and baptism, are emphasized as essential to become a Christian. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter preached Jesus for the first time. And he presented those same three conditions, belief, repentance, and baptism. And in response to his very simple message, 3,000 people obeyed the gospel that day and became Christians. You may not know very much about the Bible at all. But already you know enough to become a Christian. These conditions that are emphasized let us know how one becomes a child of God. You know, because of the beauty of technology, I receive a lot of emails and uh, Facebook inbox messages from Christians, especially preachers in foreign places, and they have a, a great many questions, questions about the Bible. But a question that recurs over and over again, especially in third world countries, is Is there some way that we can get the Bible here? Can we get it in our own language? And that individual may have access to the internet, but a lot of the members of that church, maybe out in the bush in remote places, they don't have access to the Bible. When you think about this nation, even in a lot of non-Christian households, there are a lot of people who have a Bible. And in many Christian homes, we have not one, but several Bibles. And thanks to the, pro- the how prolific the internet here is in our country, it's a free app. It's a website of, of many different... Places that have the Bible for free in its totality there. It may take some diligence and some effort on our part, but we can understand the will of God by opening up the Bible. We don't have to go around wandering through life and wondering what does God feel about salvation and about sin in the church. He's made it known. If we go through life and we don't know what the will of God is, it's because we've not exerted the diligence that was required for us to open up the word of God and to know what God wants us to do. You see, God has placed His word as a hill between a person and being lost. Then there's also the hill of common sense. All of us have at least a little of it. God created us with it. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man that built his house upon the rock. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, I will liken him unto a foolish man that built his house upon the sand. And the rains descended, and the winds blew, the floods came, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes an appeal to our common sense. He says, if you hear these sayings of mine and you don't do them, you are like a man who had the money. And he expended the money and the time and the effort and he built a house. But he was so insensible that he built his house on a foundation so flimsy that the first storm that came along swept it all away. Jesus is saying that this man did not use his head. And if you hear these sayings of mine and you don't do them, you're in the same category as that man. Can you imagine what it would be like on the day of judgment? To maybe stand behind a person from one of those nations that I mentioned a moment ago. And that individual were to say to you, I'm not prepared for this day. I don't know a thing about it. I've never heard the gospel preached. And if you were to have to say, I'm not prepared for this day either. He were to say, well, where did you come from? And you were to say, I came from America. And he says, you mean you came from America, a land of Bibles, and you know knew the way to heaven? And you say, yes, I knew the way to heaven. I heard the gospel preached, but I didn't do a thing about it. One is going to be insensible, standing before God, having spurned such wonderful and endless opportunities. Surely the worst place in the whole globe from which to die lost is here in America, because we've been so unusually blessed. And we have been given the gospel and the Bible and access to it like maybe no nation before us. Those who die lost in America certainly would seem to be the objects of God's greatest wrath because we've been so uniquely blessed and have had the word given to us. You know, your common sense is going to tell you two things to do. Your common sense is going to say, do what you know is right, it's right to build a house on a solid foundation. It's right to obey the gospel. You know that you're made in the image of God, that you're accountable to Him. One day you're going to die and you're going to stand before Him in the judgment. Do what you know is right. But common sense is also going to tell you do what you know is right, right now. Suppose you're sitting in your house and you don't realize you're in danger and somebody bursts in the door and says you've got to get out of here. Your house is on fire. Common sense says run. Or maybe you're in the water and you can't swim and somebody comes along in a boat and they offer to pull you out. It doesn't make sense to refuse that help because you know that you're about to perish. You see, God has given us our common sense. If we need to obey the gospel, why would we put it off a moment longer? God has placed our own common sense as a hill on the roadway to hell. There's also the hill of family. I know that you cannot obey the gospel for your family, and they cannot obey the gospel for you. In the context of talking about the widows there at Ephesus in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, Paul makes an emphasis of providing for one's own. And I know that in context he's talking about physical assistance, but certainly we are to render spiritual assistance to our families. Inasmuch as I have a 20 year old son named Gary and an 18 year old son named Dale. And a 15-year-old son named Carl. And inasmuch as I have a beautiful wife named Kathy. I have a special responsibility to them. They need me to go to heaven. And I need them. I need to be the right example. I need to be evangelistic. I need to be faithful to, to my Lord. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23 says. The husband is the head of the wife. Even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. I cannot imagine a man in this building saying to his family, I know that you need me to go to heaven. And more likely than not, you're not going to make it without me. But if you're going to make it to heaven, you're going to have to make it alone. I can't imagine a man saying that to his family. You know, sometimes we talk about children that are unfortunate. And by that we mean inadequately fed and improperly clothed and without a mom and dad in the home. But the most unfortunate child in all the world... Is a child that grows up in a home without God and Christ. Without a daddy who loves God and Christ. Without a daddy who's obeyed the gospel. Who is not evangelistic. Who's not trying to live right. Who's not reading his Bible and praying to God. That's the most unfortunate little child in all the world. It's amazing the difference that one family member can make. In the spiritual welfare of the whole family. Sometimes it's the wife who is obedient to Christ and through her example, her entire family is one to the Lord. Sometimes it's even a little child who is introduced to the church and through his or her influence brings the entire family to Christ. If you need to obey the gospel, do it for yourself, but do it also for your family. But then also, Calvary is a hill on the roadway to hell. Can you imagine if it were possible somebody going up to the cross of Calvary and saying, Lord Jesus, I know why you're here. You're taking my place. You're bearing my punishment. You're taking for me what rightfully I deserve. But don't ask me to become a Christian. Don't ask me to be active in the work of the church. Don't ask me to lead my family. I cannot imagine a single person ever saying that. Whenever you say no to the invitation, you're not saying no to the preacher or the sermon. You're saying no to the cross of Calvary. But then God's wonderful love is a hill on the roadway to hell. It's difficult to adequately describe the love of God. It's so deep you can bathe in it. It's so high it will take you all the way to heaven. It's so warm it will change you into the image of Christ. But perhaps the best example of that is seen in what we saw in our Bible class this morning in Genesis chapter 22. In the story of Abraham. Abraham had been waiting. And he and Sarah for that child for so long. That child of promise. And in Genesis 22. That child has arrived. And God speaks to Abraham and says. Take now your son. Your only son. Whom you love. Isaac. And get to the land of Moriah. one of the mountains that I will tell you of. And there offer him as a burnt offering. No argument on Abraham's part. Abraham gathers his servants and his son. And they go off toward Moriah. And on the third day they get to the spot that God had preordained. And Abraham takes Isaac and he says to those slaves. He says, I and the lad go yonder to worship and we will return. And there they go up the side of the mountain with the accoutrements. The things that God wants in that sacrifice. And as they're going up. It's hard to imagine what Abraham might have been feeling or thinking. Taking this only son. Up to sacrifice him. He finally gets up to the top. Though Isaac's wondering where the sacrifice is. Since everything else was provided and in hand. Abraham gets him up on top of that mountain. And we are not privy to what's said. We have every indication that Abraham was a good father. Certainly he would have been as compassionate. And as loving. Perhaps even try to explain what was going on. But Abraham is bound And the sacrifice is about to occur. But we pause in our minds as we're looking at that scene. And we're realizing that at that moment. The God who has always existed. The Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit are there. And the Father and the Spirit are observing what's taking place. The Son knows. According to the eternal purpose of God. Ephesians 3, 9-11. And can look across the scene of time to another hill. A hill on which a father will allow his son to die. As he sees the father, Abraham, spared his son. A picture of God's wonderful love. If God's love cannot move us to be obedient to the gospel... The gift that was not withheld from us, then I'm not sure that there is a thing that will spur us and motivate us to become a Christian. You see, the road to hell is like that up one hill and down another, saying no to the hill of gospel preaching, saying no to the hill of the church, to the hill of the Bible. To the hill of our own inherent common sense. The hill of family. To the hill of the cross of Calvary. And the hill of God's unfathomable love. I realize though, that given the size of those who are here today, there are some accountable people here we have already climbed over all of those hills and unless there's a change that's made have successfully climbed over them now that can change if our response to the gospel goes from being hardened to being humbled and our heart being open to be obedient and there are others who are in the process of climbing those you know sometimes there's a time to think and there's a time to act it may be that you've been telling yourself, I've been thinking about this, I, I've given thought to that, and, and I'm going to do that someday. But you know, what can happen is that we can rationalize, we can call it thinking about it, and yet we've already made the decision. By delaying, by putting it off indefinitely, we're saying, I'm not going to do it. And yet we realize that we make that decision in light of Matthew seven thirteen and 14, that life has only two roadways, and all of us are on one or the other today. Eternity has only two dwelling places and we're all heading toward one or the other. And in light of the fact that the majority are not going to heaven, we want to do what God and His Word has told us to do. Believe, repent, and be baptized. If you haven't done that, it's as simple as that. This invitation song that Donnie's about to lead is to encourage you to make that response. You don't have to do it publicly. You can do it at any time, night or day. But maybe you've arrived at the moment and why would you want to put it off a moment longer? Or maybe you're a child of God who's not leading your family or being in your family or in those that influence you what you need to be. And you need to be restored. This invitation song's for you as well. If you need to respond to this invitation, why not right now as we stand and sing?